those of you that know me know that I'm a guy who likes to joke and likes to, you know, play around. I love, I love to tell dad jokes. I might be the dad joke king of Logos. Um, it's kind of become a thing for me that every day some of the kids will come by and say, so what's the joke of the day? So I know I have that pressure on me every day to produce another joke. And I was, I was looking through the internet, scavenging, trying to find something funny about Habakkuk, and it does not exist. There's just nothing funny about the book of Habakkuk at all. Nothing I can find. But as I was searching, I did find some interesting little nuggets that I wanted to share with you today. So first off, who was the smartest man in the Bible? Anybody? Smartest man? Jesus. Okay. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Who would we normally uh, say is the smartest man in the Bible? Solomon, right? It's not Solomon. It's, it's Abraham because uh, he knew a lot. Okay. <laughs> I also found interesting observations. Uh, there was a guy who said, I was thinking about how people seem to read the Bible a whole lot more as they get older, and then it dawned on me they're cramming for their final exam. There were realizations I found. I found that Moses had the first tablet that could connect to the cloud. <laughs> interesting. I even found some archaeological information. Where was Solomon's temple located? Right on the side of his head. It's temple. It's temple. Okay. All right. And so the only thing I found that was interesting about Habakkuk was a, a poll that a pastor had taken of his church when he was going to start a series on Habakkuk. And the question was, what is Habakkuk? And these were some of the responses that he got in the poll. A word spelled backwards. Uh, a Jewish holiday. Habakkuk. Uh, a village in Vietnam, a new game, and one of my favorites is a disease of the lower back. So it's clear that, as we talked about in chapter one, Habakkuk is not that well known, okay? And so before we go into chapter three, I think it's important that we just quickly review chapters one and two and kind of have a, a good foundation of where we are as we go into chapter three. So. We know that there's very little known about Habakkuk. Um, there's only two mentions of him um, in the book of prophecy. Both times he identifies himself as Habakkuk the prophet. Uh, and there's evidence that Habakkuk was also a priest or a worship leader, as we'll kind of see uh, here in chapter 3. Uh, the book is dated to have been written or prophesied during the reign of Josiah and onto the reign of his sons, Je Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim, putting it somewhere between 640 in 698 BC. Um, the book opens with one of the most remarkable sections in all of Scripture where we have this extended dialogue between Habakkuk and God. And the prophet initiates his conversation based on some distress that he has in God's inaction in the world. And he wants to see God do something more, especially in the area of injustice, injustice for evildoers, or justice for evildoers. And we find that Habakkuk is a frustrated prophet, much like Jonah was. And for those of you that remember, we, had, we talked about Jonah before we got into Habakkuk. The difference is Habakkuk channels his frustration through prayer instead of trying to run away from God like Jonah did. And so there's so much evil that Habakkuk is seeing in, in Judah. And it's all evil that's being done in the open. No one's trying to hide it. It's just there for everyone to see. And God seems strangely silent. Where was he? 
How long was he going to allow all of this stuff to keep going? And so God finally responds to Habakkuk and he says, not long. And after, after that conversation, Habakkuk learns that another nation, the Babylonians, are going to be coming and they're going to execute God's justice onto Judah. And if you recall, that revelation that God gave to Habakkuk did not sit well with the prophet. He struggled with you know, God using people that were even more corrupt and more evil than Judah to be the instruments of God's correction. And he was concerned that the Babylonians would grow prideful in their own glory and they would, they would give credit to themselves or to their false gods for something that God had actually enabled them to do. And he further felt that Judah needed to know that the Babylonians were Judah's judgment because of their turning their back on God. And so, as Habakkuk shares these concerns with God, the Lord responds. And he says in verse 4 of chapter 2, but the righteous shall live by faith. And Jeff did a great job last week pointing out what that means, the impact that that, that verse has had on both New Testament authors, on Martin Luther himself, and we come to a place where we understand two things, that pride brings destruction and faith brings righteousness. It's pride or faith, it's one or the other. Where there is pride, faith is absent, and where there is faith, pride is not. We're not only saved by faith, but we are to live by faith. And Habakkuk knew that difficult times were coming to the people of Judah, and their only resource was to trust in God's word and to rest in his will. And God goes on in chapter 2 to pronounce five woes aimed at the Babylonians. Habakkuk's so concerned about you know, them being used for Judah's correction. And here God informs him that the Babylonians will not go far without seeing their own judgment as well. And so the five woes cover the areas of greed, arrogance, violence, degradation, and idolatry. And God ends chapter 2 announcing to all the nations that God is on the throne and He has everything under control. See, God's reply in chapter 2 makes a, a huge difference in Habakkuk's perception. He's been transformed from a worrier and a watcher to becoming a worshiper. And in the closing chapter of this book, he shares with us the vision he had of God and the difference that is made in his life. So we're going to dive into chapter 3 now in verse 1 where it says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigonot. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now for verse 2, I personally prefer the King James Version of this, which goes like this. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years make known, in wrath remember mercy. When Habakkuk first heard God's plan, he was afraid. It frightened him. And fear can be a good thing, it can be a bad thing, depending on where it comes from and how it's used. A healthy fear of God can help us respect Him and to seek to understand Him better. A healthy fear of God will remove a desire to challenge Him and to challenge His ways, but to move us to seek His help. It can strengthen our desire to live a holy life. In Proverbs 1.7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. 
And Habakkuk knows that God is on his throne. And once God has explained everything, he realizes that God's wisdom is far beyond his limited understanding. And he prays, O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. And he's simply praying for revival, for real, heartfelt revival. Not just the religious reforms that people had been pretending under King Josiah. Revive your work and make it known to the people, but not on the surface, deep inside their hearts. And this prayer of Habakkuk shows us that revival is a sovereign work of God. It's not manufactured by programming. It's not manufactured by man. But there is something that man can do and must do for revival to take place. That is to simply cry out to God and to plead for him to bring it. How many of you, and I'm talking to myself as well, in your prayers, whenever they happen, whether it's daily or weekly or monthly or whatever, how many of you ever ask God for revival? I admit, I, I don't normally think to ask for revival. It's not something that I commonly keep on the front of my mind. Maybe we should. Maybe that's why we don't have any. We're not praying for it. I know that's uh, the issue in, in my case, at least. So, even though both Judah and Babylon are more deserving of righteous judgment, Habakkuk now asks for mercy. He prayed, in wrath, remember mercy. Now, Habakkuk knows that judgment is coming, but he also knows that along with the majority who were evil, there's a minority who are living in faith. And so, what he's asking for is that these faith-loving people, that God shows them mercy when the judgment comes. Consider the contrast here between wrath and mercy. There are two aspects, these are two aspects of God's character that are counterbalanced. God hates sin, and at the same time, He is merciful to sinners. He is just and merciful at the same time. And we see that come together most effectively and most perfectly on the cross, where we have justice and mercy combined. However, like us, Habakkuk hopes that he'll get to see more of the mercy side than the wrath side. And we seldom see that balance represented in biblical teaching today. Many churches and preachers are hyper-focused on mercy, that, that mercy part of God, emphasizing on God's grace and God's forgiveness and God is love. These are all extremely important and essential aspects of God's character, but at the same time, many leave out the wrath against sin and God's judgment. We need to have both sides represented to truly understand who God is. There is wrath and there is mercy. And like Judah, God one day will judge our nation. And uh, we should probably let Habakkuk's prayer be our prayer as well. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known, and in wrath, please remember mercy. Let's go on to verse 3. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. Now, some of you may pronounce that word Selah. I think the closest real pronunciation is Selah. 
And we're going to stop here for just a minute because the true meaning of Selah is a bit of a mystery. Um, Bible scholars have come up with multiple meanings and possible explanations, but there is just no set meaning. How many of you, when you read the Psalms, come across the word Selah and you just kind of say it and skip over, but you have no idea what it means? So the New American Standard Hebrew lexicon defines the Hebrew word Selah as to lift up or to exalt. Some scholars believe that Selah was actually a musical notation, possibly meaning silence or pause. Still others say it's similar to a musical interlude, a pause in the voices singing while the instruments continue to perform alone. Selah is translated as intermission in the Septuagint, which is the earliest Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the Septuagint is significant because it was completed in the second century BC and was quoted by the Apostle Paul. Selah occurs 74 times in the Bible, 71 times in the Psalms, and three times in the book of Habakkuk. It is, the, it is only found in the poetic books of the Old Testament, and 31 of the 39 Psalms that include the word Selah are titled to the choir master, which is why some scholars believe that this word is a musical notation. And so due to the confusion around the meaning of the word Selah, Bible translators have translated it in different ways. Uh, the King James Version, the English Standard Version, and the New American Standard Version translate the Hebrew word phonetically. So for example, the English Standard Version of Psalm 68:19 ends with Selah. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation, Selah. But the New Living Translation of Psalm 68:19, Selah is translated as interlude. Praise the Lord, praise God our Savior, for each day he carries us in his arms, interlude. In the New Testament version, they just use a footnote at the end of the verse. So thus the question of how we interpret Selah leaves us with few, a few practical options. Since we don't actually know what Selah means, you could skip over it, as the translators of the NIV do, and you don't lose any meaning in the passage if you do that. So that's option one. Or, and this is my personal suggestion, you could follow the model laid out by the translators of the Septuagint, who translated it as intermission, and use Selah as a, a moment to take a pause and to process what you've just read before you move on to the rest, to reflect on the meaning of the verse before continuing to the rest of the passage. Now, we're not going to do that today as we go through the text because of time, but that's something you might want to consider just trying it and see if, if that gives you anything that you can process better as you take a moment to pause before continuing in the passage. Let's go on with the rest of verse 3. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. So here in verse 4, Habakkuk begins describing God's glory. And he uses four different related words to light, including brightness, light, which is referring to sunlight, rays, and flashing. Now, biblically, light is a symbol of holiness and truth. It's also used to describe the glory of God. We're going to rapid fire these. Here we go. In Acts 2-3, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit appeared as a flame of fire. In Hebrews 12-29, he describes God as a consuming fire. In Isaiah 60, 19-20, it says God will be our everlasting light. In 1 Corinthians 15-41, Paul uses the word glory to describe the light from the sun, the moon, and the stars. God represents, represents himself to Moses as fire in the burning bush in Exodus 
3, 1 through 5. He's a pillar of cloud and fire when he holds back the Egyptians at the Red Sea in Exodus 14, 19. And he guided the Israelites through the desert at night as a pillar of fire to give light in Exodus 13, 21. Light is a wondrous thing. Our world cannot exist without light. The creation account in Genesis tells us that light did not begin with the sun. For even before the sun was created, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Well, where did this light come from? Most likely, it came from God himself. He was the source of light, and he will be the source of light again. In Revelation 21, 23, it says, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And 1 John 1, 5 proclaims that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Light can be seen by all. Darkness hides and conceals and covers, while light exposes the truth. Light is powerful and far-reaching, able to illuminate everything. And when we seek God, we will find him. He is faithful to illuminate truth in our daily lives. In Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we walk daily in the light of life. Seek the Lord in the darkness. He is the only real light you can count on for eternity. Verse 5. Before him was pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Folks, God is just. And when people rebel against him, judgment will come, whether it's sooner or later. When the Assyrians tried to conquer Judah, 185,000 people were killed by pestilence. When the Israelites sinned, committing immorality with the Moabites, 24,000 people were killed. These events show us that God has a clear power over life and death. Verse 6, he stood and measured the earth. He He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. God is watching. He is involved in his creation. There's a view of God known as deism or deism that teaches that there is a God, it's a supreme being or a creator, and this God created the world and everything that's in it. And for deists, God was this benevolent, if distant creator whose revelation was nature and human reason. And so by applying Reason to nature, it taught most deists that God organized the world to promote human happiness, and its greatest religious duty was to further that end by the practice of morality. Those of you that are Americans, Thomas Jefferson was a deist. Thus, God created the world, and then he abandoned it, having, leaving it to its own devices. This is not the biblical view of who God is from my perspective. God is continually involved in the world. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. First Peter 3.12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. God is observing his people and is always aware and involved in what's going on. God is watching God is watching you. God is watching me. How does knowing that 
affect your life? Does knowing that impact your life at all? I'm speaking to myself (laughs) as I ask these questions, okay? Verse 7, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did not, I'm sorry, did tremble. So Cushan was a part of the territory of Midian, and verse 7 is saying that the territory of the Midianites cannot stand up to God's gaze. Their tents are their dwellings, their tents are their homes, and God's judgment will surely collapse their homes and their very lives. Psalm 127.1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. These people did not build their lives on God. Thus, they cannot stand up to His judgment. Verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses? On your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crashed, I'm sorry, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare, from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Now, as I had said before, Habakkuk was most likely a worship leader or um, a priest in the temple, and Here is one of the songs that he composes to be used in worship. It's a psalm of praise declaring God's mighty acts on behalf of his people. And we see many references here to nature. Habakkuk tells us about rivers and seas and horses and mountains and earthquakes and storms and lightning. He says the rivers raged and the seas churned and the mountains quaked and the sun and moon stopped moving and the storms sweep in. All of these natural things that we observe, God is behind them all. As believers in the Lord, we need to know that these things are not random acts of nature. God is in control of all of it. God controls nature and the courses of mankind as well, all to bring about His purposes and His plans in exactly His time. So what does that mean? It means we don't need to live in fear of these things. Where unbelievers see random events of Mother Nature, we see God's power and justice and providence. He used the Red Sea to destroy Pharaoh's army in Exodus 14. He used an earthquake to execute vengeance against rebels in the wilderness in Numbers 16. He threw down hailstones from heaven against Israel's enemies in Joshua 10. He caused the sea to rage when Jonah tried to escape his presence, and the list goes on and on. God is absolutely sovereign over nature over His creation. Verse 16, it says, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. 
Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon, pe- upon people who invade us. If you remember, Habakkuk began his cry to God in a demand that God give him a response. And when God did finally come to him, the revelation wiped him out and left him feeling weak and sick. In other words, it makes me sick to my stomach to think about what's going to happen. The Babylonian, when the Babylonians attack, this is not going to be a pleasant experience. A lot of people are going to die. Probably me. Probably those that I love and care about. There's going to be a lot of bloodshed, and the thought of all of that makes me sick. Verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there will be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Now these verses actually deserve a full message on their own. So I'll do my best to try to summarize these three or four verses this way. These verses are a perfect end to the book of Habakkuk, which declares Habakkuk's faith in God. He has moved from wrestling with God over how God works and instead clings to Him in simple faith. He says that that even if all evidence of the goodness of God is missing, He will cling to the Lord and He will trust that in the end, everything will work out right. Now keep in mind that in ancient Israel, it was an agricultural society. So if you ran out of figs and olives and grapes and sheep and cattle, you are in big trouble. You have lost everything. And my friends, this is faith in its purest and best. When a man or a woman has lost all other evidence of love, of the love and grace of God, and has nothing left other than God's bare word. When we hold on to God like that, that is faith's real test. That's the lesson of the book of Job. That's the lesson of Habakkuk. And that's the lesson all of us must learn one way or another. And so this raises questions for us. What would you do if you lost everything? What would you do if you get wiped out, if your investments disappear, if you lose your job? What if you can't pay your bills? What if the doctor says it's terminal? What if your spouse has a heart attack and you're left alone? What if your house burns down with everything in it? What then? Are we able to say, like Habakkuk, even though I don't like it and even though I don't understand it and even though I know God could do something about it if he wanted to, but he doesn't, even then, my trust is in the Lord, my God? There are some Christians who have a God of the good times. They, they serve God and they love Him and they praise Him when everything is going great, but some people's idea of faith is, Lord, you take care of me and, and I'll follow you. It's a transactional relationship. You make sure I've got enough money and you keep me from being sick and you fill my life with lots of blessings and in return, I'll believe in you and I'll serve you. 
But what do you do when the hard times come? Because if all that you have is a God of the good times, you don't have a God of the Bible. So what do you do then? You get angry with God, or do you give up on God altogether? Or do you choose to trust God anyway? Faith chooses to believe when it would be easier to stop believing. Habakkuk said, I will wait patiently and I will rejoice. And I pray that every single one of you would grow to have what I call a Habakkuk chapter 3 type of faith. But here's the deal. You can't have a chapter 3 type of faith until you've had a chapter 1 type of question. And you've had a chapter 2 type of waiting. Because God can do more with us spiritually when we're going through tough times than he does when we're having mountaintop experiences. And those of you who are closest to God, you know this because you've gone through it before. And I pray that if you have not experienced the same thing, that eventually the day will come when you will have known God's goodness and faithfulness in enough yesterdays that you can trust Him in all of your tomorrows. But the hardest part is waiting. Because we want God to fix everything right away. Psalm 27 says, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. God is worth waiting for. Lamentations 3, it says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. We are called to hope and to wait in the Lord because God often uses waiting to refresh, to renew, and to teach us. But ultimately, the goal is to get to a place where we can say, I don't know what lies ahead. It may be good times, it may be bad, but either way, I will trust in God, and in the end, everything will work out fine. Because I remember that what God has done in the past, and I accept what he's doing right now, and I trust what he's going to do in the future. So let me point out one of the most important observations that we should take from Habakkuk. As this book comes to a close, nothing has changed outside. The people of Judah have still forgotten God. Violence still reigns in Jerusalem. The wicked still oppress the righteous. And the Babylonians are still coming. And hard times are coming, and there is nothing anyone can do about it. Nothing has changed except for this. Habakkuk has changed on the inside. He finally has come to a realization that God is in control of the universe. He learned that he could trust God completely, even though he could only see a small part of God's plan. And as Isaiah pointed out in Isaiah 55, God's ways are not man's ways. And God doesn't promise that he'll explain everything to us, but he does assure us that we can put our trust in him. And so how can we obey the principles of Habakkuk in our own lives? How do we apply this? First, know that it's okay, it's even good sometimes, to sincerely ask questions of God and to seek answers. But seek answers humbly through prayer. Habakkuk approached God not as an equal or as a challenger, but as a humble petitioner before a king. And like Habakkuk, when we approach God in prayer, it should be from a place of humility and respect.
Seek answers through reading the Word. Seek answers from other mature believers. But don't stay in a state of doubt forever. There needs to be a point in time when you move from doubt into faith. Habakkuk has given us an excellent example of what that looks like. We pour out our hearts and our unedited emotions to God. We persist in our pouring out until we receive an answer. And in the absence of an answer, we exercise our faith and trust in God. And we find rest in knowing that God is bigger than any problem or situation. And He has a plan that will come to pass in His time. So, if the answer comes, great, move on in faith. And if the answer doesn't come or only part of the answer comes, move on in faith. Resting in doubt will only cause you to further question God and your faith, and it will pull you further away from the person you're actually trying to get closer to. And finally, as our worship team comes back up, know that God is an omnipotent God who has all things under control. We just need to be still and know that He's at work. He is who He says He is, and He will keep His promises. He will punish the wicked. He, um, even when, he, when we can't see it, He is still on the throne of the universe. We need to stay focused on this. Habakkuk 3.19, God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Enabling us to tread on high places with Him is where we are set apart from the rest of the world. Sometimes, the way we have to go to get there is through pain and sorrow. But if we rest in Him and trust in Him, we will come out exactly where He wants us to be. And that, my friends, is how each of us lives by faith. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for this amazing book you have given to us in Scripture. We thank you that it is the inspired Word of God. Lord, you know our needs, you know the hearts of every person in this room, and you know which hearts are broken here today. We thank you that you, Lord Jesus, have endured the suffering that we deserved. We thank you that we can look back in history and we can see a powerful God who's in control who has a plan for us, who has a plan to meet our needs, most importantly, our spiritual needs. And I pray that you will give us faith. I pray for those who might be suffering here today, that you would work powerfully in their lives, that you would bring them to a place where they can see you as greater than their circumstances. I pray that you will send revival to every soul here today, revival to every soul in Cambodia, in Asia, and in the world, for you are a mighty God. And I pray, Lord, as we, as we sing, you let our hearts and minds open to you and your awesome wonder. Let us consider all the works your hands have made. For thy power throughout the universe is assuredly displayed. And all God's people said, Amen.